We started a series titled AD, After Death. Uh, in that series, uh, we're talking about after Jesus died, there are different encounters that he had with different people and different responses that they all had to the cross. Because how many people know that being a Christian doesn't mean that everything becomes easy? Now, are y'all going to talk back to me today or am I preach to myself? Um, it's, it's not easy. I think sometimes we sign up for Christianity and we think that things are just supposed to be real smooth and real easy. But we're going to see that you've got guys like Thomas who doubted even the resurrection of Jesus. And then you have, and this is what I'm going to be dealing with next um, Sunday. Jesus reveals himself or as to uh, two witnesses that are not men. Let me tell you why that's important. Um, back in Jesus' day, it was not legal for women to be witnesses in a court of law. Uh, but the fact that Jesus shows up and he allows the first witnesses of the resurrection to be women. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, the call of women to ministry, the call of women to leadership. I'm going to help uh, shift your theology a little bit, um, help you understand verses where Paul tells women to be quiet in the church, give you context for that uh, so that we understand. Because how many people know we don't want women to be quiet in the church? I got two women with me. All right, fellas. <laughs> we need women in leadership. But I'm going to prove to you theologically the call of women in the house of the Lord. Would you stand with me to your feet? And just because it's our tradition to stand for the reading of God's word. Turn your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 16. And we're going to read two passages of scripture. One passage we'll read. And then the, the other passage I'll just have you turn to. And I'm going to kind of walk and tour down that that those verses. As you're turning to Mark chapter 16, let me pray. God, I thank you for this house. I thank you that this is a house of hope, a house of healing, deliverance, freedom, restoration, and salvation. God, I pray that as your word goes forth, that you would anoint me to preach your word, anoint your people to receive your word. And God, we pray that your people would be edified, Jesus glorified, and Satan terrified in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Mark chapter 16, verse 6, if you're there, say, I've got it. If you need more time, say, hold up. All right, I'll wait for you. Mark chapter 16. And I've preached uh, this passage before in a little bit of a different way, so you might have heard me preach this. But I, I want to hit something more specific today. I want to talk about discouragement. What do you do when you're discouraged? How do you overcome discouragement? Now, I know none of you have been discouraged ever. You never had a down day. But I'll preach to myself today if I have to. Mark chapter 16, verse 6. I'm reading from the New King James Version. But go, tell, and the word his there, it's referring to Jesus. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. As he said to you, one more time, but go tell his disciples, but don't just tell his disciples, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Now keep your finger there, turn to John chapter 21. And you can be seated, we're not going to read John chapter 21, but you're going to need to reference it. I want to preach to you, thank you El. I want to preach to you about Peter today. The title of my message tonight is, I'm Saved and Discouraged. I'm Saved and Discouraged. I find it interesting that in the resurrection, Jesus, and we'll deal with this a little bit later on in the message, 
Jesus makes sure to identify this one disciple amidst all of the disciples that had been following Jesus. When Jesus rises from the dead and he tells Mary to go tell his disciples that he's made a comeback, he makes sure to mention not Matthew, not Mark, not Luke, not John, not Bartholomew, not Judas. Well, Judas is gone by this time. But he says, tell my disciples and Peter. We're going to see why in just a moment. I was looking up some statistics, and I found out that one out of three Americans deal with some sort of diagnosed anxiety or depression. One-third of Americans. 17.3 million Americans are diagnosed with depression. And here's a, here's a real fun fact for you. Nearly 50% of pastors right now feel overwhelmed and admit to being fatigued. And if fatigue and discouragement can hit the leaders of the body of Christ, how much more so for those who follow in our footsteps? Discouragement is a real thing, and sometimes we try to speak in tongues over it, we try to worship through it, and all of that is great and fine. But I want to know, what do I do with my discouragement? Does it mean that I'm less of a Christian, that I have less faith, am I struggling in some area? What happens when you are discouraged as a believer? See, many people believe that if you're a believer, you should never struggle with discouragement, depression, or anxiety. But the Word of God affirms that the feelings of discouragement are part of the journey that we're living in. Here's the key. The key is to remember that discouragement at times will be a part of our journey. But listen to this. It will never be our destination. One more time. Discouragement will be a part of our journey. But it will never be our destination. The scripture tells us that everybody has bad days. That it doesn't just rain on the unjust, but it also rains on the just, is what the scripture says. Telling us that everybody's going to have to go through some things. And it doesn't make you a less of a believer just because you walk through some discouragement. All you need to do is read a few of the Psalms to know that the scriptures affirm that it's okay to have feelings of discouragement. Again, the key is to remember that discouragement is a part of our journey, but it's not our destination. Psalms 27, verse 13. Here's what the psalmist writes. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The psalmist here is saying that was the temptation for me to give up. But the only thing that kept me going was keeping my eyes on the goodness of the Lord. In Psalm chapter 42, verse 5, the psalmist begins to speak to his soul. And he says, soul, why are you downcast and why are you disquieted in me? But watch this. He says, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. See, what the psalmist is saying here is that it's okay to admit that you're discouraged. Just don't stay there. Another psalmist, a very famous psalmist, said, Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we shall fear no evil. Here's the crazy part. A lot of people are supposed to be walking through the valley. Instead, they're buying real estate. Now, I'm preaching good already. It, it's, it's okay to have some dark days. It's okay to be discouraged. It's just not okay to stay there. And you'll see in the honesty of the psalms, a lot of people think that David was bipolar. David wasn't bipolar. He was, he was honest. But even in his honesty, he knew that my help comes from the Lord. And so he could say, oh, today my soul is downcast. But he, then he would begin to speak to his soul and say, we're not going to stay here. Put your hope in God. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 30 through 31. The Bible says, even youth shall grow faint and be weary. The young men shall utterly fall. 
But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Even young people get tired sometimes. And the culture and generation that we live in, I knew back in my day, they didn't think young people went through anything. But we've got a few young people in the house that could admit, you don't have to be very old to have some discouraged days. Uh, we live in a culture where our young people are faced with stuff that we never had to deal with. Uh, they're, they're getting bullied online and different things like this. You're going to have some discouraged days, but the scripture is affirming it's okay to have discouraged days. Just don't land there. Luke chapter 22, because I hear you, you're saying, well, Jesus was never discouraged. Let me help fix your theology for a second. Because even Jesus was at times overwhelmed by life. Let me say this before I read the scripture. One of the titles of Jesus is that he is a kinsman redeemer. What that means is that he's a kin or relating to what we've gone through, that he has to relate to what we've gone through in order to be redeemed. The Bible actually says in every way Jesus was tempted, yet he did not sin. The, the temptation, the discouragement is not the part of, that's called sin. Even Jesus, being a kinsman redeemer, has had some days where he's felt overwhelmed. All right, give me the verse, Pastor Dell. I got you. Luke chapter 22, verses 41 through 44. And Jesus was withdrawn. Uh, let me see, read that again. Jesus was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Verse 44, and this is the part I need you to look at. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down in the ground. When Luke writes, many theologians believe that Luke is a doctor, and I looked up what would be the symptom of making someone have to sweat drops of blood. Really, when somebody gets to a certain level or a point of anxiety or worry or, or being overwhelmed, it is actually possible for you to stop sweating sweat and start sweating blood. Jesus is in so much agony. The Savior of the world, King of the universe, the Lord of all creation, the kinsman redeemer, the will in the middle of the will, the joy of our sorrow. He, Jesus himself is finding himself in a place where even his friends can't seem to get it with him. He's discouraged. He's overwhelmed. And if Jesus can be overwhelmed, what makes you think that you're not going to be? See, if you're not overwhelmed, it's probably because you're on the wrong team. The enemy doesn't need to discourage people who are fighting for him. Talk back to me. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've chosen to be crucified with Christ, you're going to have some days where you have to just say, Lord, I'm going through and I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like worshiping. I don't feel like listening to preaching. I don't feel like evangelism. But you've got to have that same word that Jesus had. Nevertheless, nevertheless says, here's how I feel, but here's what I'm going to do. Because you do not have to be a victim to your feelings. Look at your neighbor and say, that's some good preaching. See, it's not a sin to be discouraged. And there's no shame in having moments of feeling overwhelmed. I say this because a lot of times when we're discouraged, here's what we do. We isolate ourselves because of shame. We feel like we can't really be a person of power and faith and show up discouraged. One of the scariest things that you can ever do is in your moments of discouragement to find yourself isolated. Do you remember Elijah? Elijah's on the mountaintop and he has this great encounter with God on the Mount Carmel. He's facing the prophets of Jezebel, uh, who aren't really prophets, they're just paid 
prophets. They're on Jezebel's payroll. Um, and, and they're having this competition to see whose God is really God. Long story short, Elijah wins the competition because how many people know that nobody's going to beat God? After he has this great victory and slays over 400 of Jezebel's prophets, Jezebel whispers a word to Elijah, sends it, uh, well, they didn't have text message, but you can use your imagination, whispers a word towards him and says, uh, by this time tomorrow, I'm going to kill you. And here's what Elijah does. He doesn't go to a conference. He doesn't go into prayer. He doesn't call his accountability partner. The Bible says he does the same thing that many of us do today. He runs to a cave and he isolates himself. And here's what he says. God, I'm the only one. Have you ever felt like that? Like nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody's been through what I've been through. Nobody can understand. So I'm just going to isolate until I feel better. And then I'll pop up like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Elijah is sitting in the cave, discouraged and isolated, and he thinks that he is the only one, and God has to whisper to him, say, boy, get up. Well, this is how I would read it. I read the NIV version, the Negro International version, and I can hear God saying, get up. He said, as a matter of fact, I've got 7,000 more prophets just like you. See, in moments of discouragement, don't isolate yourself, but here's what I love about God. Even if you find yourself in isolation, God still speaks in dark places. Ooh. He still speaks in isolated places. Some of us can testify that we try to isolate ourselves, we try to do wrong, we try to turn our back. And like Jeremiah in his backslidden days, he said, the word of the Lord was like fire shut up in my bone. I just couldn't even contain it. I'm a witness that you can be discouraged and not want anything to do with the ministry, not want anything to do with the people of God, and still have God speak a whisper that can encourage your soul. So time and time again, we read through scriptures and we see different ones. Jeremiah, one of these days I'm going to do a series on Jeremiah. We call him the weeping prophet uh, because we find him in sorrow a lot. But do you know why Jeremiah was in sorrow? It's because he was discouraged often. When God, how would you love to be called by God? You know, most of us in here, we'd say, man, we, we are called by God. Here was Jeremiah's calling. God calls Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, I'm going to raise you up and you're going to be my prophet. But nobody's going to listen to you. They're going to hate you. They're going to rebel against you. And that's going to be the rest of your ministry for the rest of your life. I'd be a weeping prophet too. <laughs> See, I think the church, we've messed up in thinking that having sadness and discouragement means that we don't have joy. You can have joy in the midst of sorrow. You, I lost my grandmother, oh, I think it's been about two years now. And, you know, I was crying, and my grandmother and I had a very complex relationship, uh, but I, I loved her, I, I missed her, and so I started weeping, and I started crying, and every time people saw me, they just kind of give me, you know that, like, puppy, puppy dog thing, like, oh, oh, brother. Like, and it's kind of that thing of, like, oh, you're about to give up, I know you're about to give up, so let me, it's going to be all right, brother. And I just looked at somebody, because they looked at me and said, I know you're really sad, but don't give up. And I kind of dried my eyes, like, give up? I wasn't going to give up. It's like I'm, I'm weeping and I'm, I'm crying. But like Paul said, and I think it's in the book of Philippians, he said, we do not weep as those who have no hope. My tears are not the tears of the world, that I'm sad in a different way. I have sadness, but I have jo the joy of my salvation. Is this making sense? That you can have joy in the midst of sorrow. It doesn't mean that it negates your sadness. It doesn't negate your discouragement or pain. It just means that there is a greater hope that lies in store for us. Somebody say yes. Here's what I need you to understand. Our feelings are simply a response to a reality. Our feelings are not the reality. One more time. 
Our feelings are, and I need you to get this, our feelings are a response to a reality. Our feelings are not reality. I want to say that because many of us feel like we have to be victims to our feelings and we have to succumb to whatever our feelings say to us. But in maturity in Christ, you start realizing that I can feel one way and still know what the truth is. I get, I get handed a notice that I've lost my job and that I'm going to be laid off. Of course I'm going to be sad, but that doesn't mean that my hope is gone because Jehovah Jireh is my provider. I get a doctor's note that says I'm going to be sick. I've got cancer and only a few months to live. I, of course I'm going to be sad, but I'm not sad unto death. I've got a joy. As a matter of fact, Paul put it this way, a peace that surpasses understanding. See, I think the believer should be that kind of person that people just don't get. How can you go through what you're going through and still have joy? I'm discouraged, but I still have joy. I, I'm a little nervous, but I've still got peace. It is this juxtaposition where these two things can lie in the same place. You can have discouragement and still know where your hope is. The problem is that for many of us, we focus so much on the facts of life that we forget to depend on the truth of God's word. What do I mean? See, don't be like one of those Christians who just lies about what they're going through. I mean, your arm is tearing off your shoulder. Go, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Like, and, and you try and, you know, to, I'm, I've got to have faith, you know, I'm, I'm not sick. Actually, I'm looking at your arm, brother, you, you're, you're sick, right? Here, here's the deal, facts change, truth doesn't. How does that play a part? The fact is, I've got this broken arm and I'm not feeling well. But the truth is, God is still my victory, he's still my healer, he's still my Rapha, he's still my banner over me. Does that make sense? You have to learn how to admit the facts but receive and accept the truth. See, that's how you overcome discouragement. We're talking about Peter today, and I want to give you a little context for Peter at the cross, because Peter is not one of Jesus' uh, honor roll students. <laughs> Peter is at best a C minus. I mean, he has some good days. Uh, one day he's like, Jesus, you're the son of the living God, and here's how Jesus responds. He says, surely the Father has revealed this to you. Here's what, the way I think Jesus said it, and when we get to Netflix in heaven, we'll see if I'm right. I think Jesus was real surprised and said, Peter, there's no way you could have known that. Surely the Spirit has revealed that to you. Peter, Peter was that kid who comes to youth group and, you know, he gives up his secular music and he surrenders his life. Then by Wednesday, he doesn't even know if God is real. Peter's that one guy who's like, Jesus, I don't understand what you're saying and I'm never going to leave you because every time you speak, you give me words of life. But then on the other hand, he can't even stand against a teenage girl when it comes to his faith. Peter's, Peter's that guy who's cutting off ears one day. And then running away another. Now, I know that you can't admit to that because you always live in power and you always live in victory and you never have any struggle. But there's a Peter living inside of each and every one of us. Jesus actually gives a prophetic word to Peter that doesn't seem too encouraging, but it really was. He says, Peter, I prayed for you because the enemy is wanting to sift you like wheat. But I prayed that when you fall, that you'll get back up and you'll encourage your brothers. That doesn't seem like a very encouraging word. I mean, come on, Pastor Jesus. You just told me I'm going to fail and mess up. And here's what Jesus says. It's okay because I prayed for you. And I prayed that after you messed up and after you had your bad days, that you'll get up and let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That you'll encourage your brother. See, Jesus is not ashamed of you because you're discouraged. He's not ashamed of you because you're going through. There's some days, I don't know about you, but there's some days I come into church and don't even, 
Come on, pastor, don't ask me to lift my hands. Just be glad I'm here. I didn't feel like coming. I barely had enough gas money. I had to scramble up some stuff. And truth be told, I don't like the person I'm sitting next to, but, but I'm here. And here's the thing I love about Jesus. Jesus says, okay, I see where you're at. But I prayed for you that after this season that you're going through, you're going through, I, I pray that you'll get up and you'll actually be an encouragement where you were discouraged. See, Peter didn't think that he'd ever be uh, one of Jesus' runaway disciples. Peter loved, thought that he would be Jesus' ride or die. Do you remember the story when Jesus is sitting with Peter and the disciples, and he says uh, to those who are following him, Jesus has a bunch of followers. His blog is going off real good. He's got a bunch of Twitter followers. He's got a lot of social media likes. Everybody loves Jesus because who doesn't love the man who's healing the sick and raising the dead until Jesus says, now, in order to follow me, let's become cannibals. <laughs> as much as you love Clyde, if I ever get up, and say, in order to be a part of this church, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Go ahead and write the blog. <laughs> Shut the ministry down. It's over. See, that's what was happening in Jesus' time. They didn't really understand what he was saying, that it was metaphorical, that you have to take a part of my suffering. Peter looks at Jesus because Jesus, like a boss, after everyone leaves, Peter looks at Jesus as, as, uh, or Jesus looks at Peter rather and says, so uh, you're going to leave me too? And Peter, he's honest. He says, um... I have no clue what you're talking about. He actually says what you said is a hard thing, meaning I don't understand what you're talking about. But I do know this one thing, that I can trust you where I can't trace you. That when you speak, something happens on the inside of me. And I come alive. And so I'm not going to let my lack of understanding discourage me from following you. I'm going to still follow you even if I don't understand you. See, we have a lot of Christians who only follow the parts of God that they can understand. But Peter's not that God. Peter says, God, I will follow you even though I don't understand. I will give you blind faith. I don't know why you're moving my job. I don't know why you're moving me across the country. I don't know why you're putting me in this church. I don't know why you've got this crazy black chunky pastor as my pastor. But Lord, Lord I trust you even when I can't understand you. Jesus says to him, I prayed for you because you're going to fall. By the time... The chicken crows three times or whatever the animal was. You're going to have denied me. And Peter kind of forgot because who wants to remember a negative prophetic word? And Jesus dies. But while Jesus is being crucified, you see leading up to that, Jesus had to go through about five to six court cases illegally in the night. And here's what the Bible says. Because you remember Peter was a follower of Jesus. But then there came a point where Jesus was being attacked. And here's what the Bible says. That Peter, while they were in Caiaphas's house, the high priest, Peter sat in a corner and he observed. And from that day he followed Jesus from afar off and he observed what would happen to Jesus. See, that's a lot of Christians. When, when it gets rough, I'm just going to... Let me see how this is going to go down. See, don't, don't act like you're not Peter sometimes. You, you may not be physically uh, distant from Jesus, but we can be spiritually and emotionally distant from Jesus. Because it's easy to follow Jesus when he's walking on water. It's easy to follow Jesus when he's healing women with issues of blood. But can you follow him when it's time to suffer? Can you follow him when your prayers are only hitting the roof? Can you follow him when you have to read the word and there's nothing speaking to you, when, when you can't even pay for a prophecy? Can you follow Jesus when you don't understand? Peter up until that point was one of those guys, but then we see this thing where he starts following Jesus from a falling off. Gets so bad that this one young lady comes up to Peter and says, 
didn't Jesus tag you at that fish fry he did with the 5,000? And the, didn't, you were one of his disciples. I'm being creative, which is where I was. And, um, some of y'all are like, where's that in the Bible? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I was at the fish fry. That was some bomb fish. And we had enough to take home with us. That was real. I remember you. And Peter goes, no, no, no. That, that was, praise the Lord, brother. That, that wasn't me. Another person comes up, says, hey, I recognize you. Aren't you one of them folks that Jesus ordained, one of his associate pastors or something like, you're those disciplines, you know, one of his disciples. And Peter looks at him and goes, no, 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 it wasn't me. The, the young girl comes back and says, no, I checked my Instagram, bruh. It was really you. And here's what the Bible says, that Peter cursed her, <laughs> cussed her out. <laughs> he, he's so on it to deny Christ that he cusses out a little teenage girl. So first Peter says no, then he says no, lastly he says hell no. Have you ever, maybe not with your language denied Christ, but with your behavior? See, a lot of our discouragement will come when we heap on ourselves condemnation and shame for our bad behavior. But can I tell you something? Your righteousness on your best day is still not good enough. You're not saved because of your behavior. You're not saved because of how long you pray or how many days you confess. That might empower your walk of salvation, but you're saved because of the finished work on the cross. Your works were not good enough. If they were, he wouldn't have had to come down. But Peter, because he denies Jesus, and finally after the third time, he hears the, the crow begin to make its noise, and he remembers what Jesus says, and he runs. And he does this interesting thing in John chapter 21. I had you turn there. Because remember, uh, the disciples don't really know what's going on. All they know is that their teacher, their Lord, their Savior has now died. They haven't fully put it all together that he's going to be raised back to life for three days. They, they just know he's gone. What do you do when you know Jesus is there but you can't feel him? Now, I, I, maybe I, it's just me and I'll have to admit my truth. And I know theologically that God is omnipresent, that he is everywhere all the time. But there are some days where I wish I could feel his tangible presence. There are some days where like David, day and night my tears have become my food. I've had some down days. It's easy to follow Jesus when the tingles are there and when the hair's going up on top and you're getting called out and the prophet's giving you your social security number. You're, yeah, thank you, Jesus. I knew he was real. But what about when you pray and he doesn't answer and you still have cancer in your body? What, what do you do when, when, when you ask God to save your marriage and now you're divorced? But you can't feel Jesus. See, Peter finds himself in this position where he is now discouraged. In John chapter 21, here's what the Bible says. John chapter 21, and we're just going to roll through this. Is that all right? John chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, now mind you, Jesus has resurrected from the grave. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the, his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Verse 2. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Watch this. Verse 3. Simon Peter said to all of his boys, I am going fishing. <laughs> they said to him, well, we're going with you. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught Nothing. Now, I've, I've got to admit some truth to you. I have no idea how to fish, but I've gone fishing. I, I'm talking about spiritually. I've gone fishing. I, I've been like Peter where I said, oh, let's wrap it up. God didn't come through. 
He didn't answer the prayer. He didn't grow the church. He didn't do this. Well, I thought he was going to do in the ministry. Let, let's just give up and throw the towel. I'm going fishing. Here's what I got to talk to you about fishing. Fishing is not a sin. <laughs> We're going somewhere. See, fishing represents the familiar and comfortable places that Jesus had called Peter from. But so often, when we are discouraged, the first thing we run to is fishing, to the thing that's familiar, to the thing that's comfortable. I'm not talking about sex outside of marriage. I'm not talking about getting high. I'm talking about Netflix. <laughs> I'm talking about the extra tub of ice cream. Okay, I ain't got no witnesses in this lion church. I'm talking about video games, or do I have any Shopaholics Anonymous? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I'm talking about those places that we run to that are not necessarily sin, but they are familiar and they are comfortable. Peter says, I'm going fishing because this Jesus thing is too hard. I, I'm tired of hurting. I'm tired of pressing in. I'm tired of being rejected. So I'm going to just go do what's easy. That's why a lot of people stayed home from church. Because it's easier just to stay home. It's easier to just be comfortable. I'm going to kind of reveal something that's a little gross, but it's okay. It's my testimony. Um, part of my testimony, for those who, who don't know, I was molested for about two years in my childhood. And as a result of that, one of the things or one of the repercussions to a, a young person uh, being mishandled physically is that they can wet the bed later on than they should be. Typically, you should be done with that 10 years old or something like that. I don't know what the exact age is. But here I was, about 13 and 14 years old, still using the bathroom in the bed. I was so afraid to spend the night at people's homes because I didn't know where I was going to. 13 years old, wearing a diaper and having plastic sheets, it was embarrassing. And I would get in trouble all the time for my grandmother as if I can control me wetting the bed at night. But I remember there would be some kind of nights, and this is where it gets a little gross, but I'm trying to make a point here. There would be some nights where I would wet the bed and I would wake up after I had wet the bed in the middle of the night. And it was just warm and gross and nasty or whatever. And I would not get out of the bed to change the sheets. Because it was too cold outside of my covers. It was more comfortable to stay in my mess than it was to get out and clean up. I know that's a gross analogy, but I need you to apply it to your life. There are some comfortable places that we're in that we know God doesn't want us to be in. But it's better than the harassment of the cold of this world. I just got delivered for a second. See, fishing is not a sin, but it is what Jesus called us out of. Jesus never called us to a comfortable life. I remember when I was a youth master slash youth pastor, depending on who you ask. Uh, when I was a youth pastor... We would do missions trip, and Zach, you know, he does a bunch of missions trips. And when you have missions trips uh, with parents, the first thing they ask you, they say, well, is it going to be safe? And I would always answer, not if we do it right. <laughs> See, many of us have this idea that Christianity is just going to be the safe, easy route where he's going to make a way where there seems to be no way. We're going to know every step in every direction. But we have to understand that God has not called us to live in comfortability. When I got ordained, the first thing the pastor told me, he said, I need you, son, to get ready to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Peter said, I'm, I'm, you know what, I'm going to go fish. But Peter just doesn't go fishing by himself because how many people know misery loves company? Peter goes with a bunch of other folks. And one of the reasons why some of us don't get out of discouragement is because we only hang out with people who affirm our discouragement. 
Are you that kind of person who when you're going through, you won't hang around your Christians because you know they're going to speak a word over you. They're going to pray for you. And I just won't want none of that. I just need somebody to fully understand me. And it's great to be understood, but I need more than understanding. I need somebody to help press me through. And here's Peter is not just going fishing by himself, but he's got a community of folks who want to live in comfortability. What do your friends look like? Do they push you out of discouragement? Do they say, I know where you're at right now, but let's, let's believe God. See, when we're discouraged, we tend to want to hang out with those who won't challenge our discouragement. But one of the greatest things that you can do in moments of discouragement is hang around people with joy. Hang around people who've got peace. Not only that, but Peter had to take off his clothes to go fishing. You'll see this a little bit later because uh, he puts on his outer garment with lets them know that he didn't have it on. Now, when you go fishing and you start living a compromised and comfortable life, the clothing in the scriptures oftentimes represented identity. And in order to live in what God called you out of, you've got to take your identity off. Mm-hmm. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. And how often in moments of discouragement do we forget who we are? We allow the enemy to trick us and make us feel like we're less than. Listen, I may not have a lot of money, but I've got provision. I may not have full healing in my body, but I've got the healer. You've got to remind yourself who you are. That you, This is just a momentary affliction. This is not your identity. Look at your neighbor, say neighbor. Put your clothes back on. <laughs> not only that, here's the thing about fishing. Again, it's not sin, but here's the problem. Jesus called Peter to supernatural fishing, but Peter settled for normal. See, when we're discouraged, we can tend to settle for a mundane and spiritless life. I just want it easy. Just give me a job with a nice 401k plan. No, no hills, no mountains, no valleys. Just, just make it easy for me. See, it wasn't that Jesus didn't want Peter to fish. He had just called him to a higher level of fishing. It's not that God doesn't want you to live. Girl, take the vacation. Take me with you. Please. Pay for everything. Amen. Um, but it's not that. He, he's just saying, you think you can live life? Try serving me. Because I've come to give you life and life more abundantly, exceedingly and abundantly, above all you can ask or think. See, when you are not living the spirit-filled life and you settle in the comfortability of discouragement, you settle for less than what Jesus has to offer you. Somebody needs to say amen right there. Look at verse 4 and 5 of John chapter 21. Because I want to give you a few ways to respond to discouragement. So we see Peter's in the boat. He's gone fishing. And this is key. He's caught nothing. Because if you're going to live a comfortable life, you're also going to live a fruitless life. You may get the degree, but you'll be fruitless. You may get your parents' approval, but you'll be fruitless. Living a comfortable life is a life that may get you success in the world. But I don't care about success in the world. I want heaven and hell to know my name. Let's look at verse 4. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, children, have you any food? The first thing you've got to do is pause. Whenever Jesus asks a question, here's the thing you've got to understand. He already knows the answer. You don't. 
You remember the first question that was ever asked in all of eternity? God comes down after creating an Adam and Eve, and they were walking with God in the cool of the day, and God came down to walk with them again and didn't find them where he would normally find them. What does God ask? He says, where are you? Do you think God was bad at playing hide-and-go-seek? It's not that God didn't know where Adam was. Adam didn't know where Adam was. Because you're not in the normal place where we normally meet. Because it's possible. Remember, Adam and Eve are walking with the physical, not the spiritual, not the metaphorical presence of God, but the physical, tangible presence of God. They are walking with God and they still mess up. That proves to me that you can have a good walk with God and still mess up. I'm going to listen to this message tomorrow and bless myself. Because everybody thinks because you walk with God, you're not going to have some off days. You're going to have some off days. But when God asks you a question, here's what that is. Write this down. The first thing you need to do in your moment of discouragement is to pause. Jesus asks a question because he's asking them to reflect on where they are right there. Have you caught nothing? It's almost as if Jesus is teasing him. Let me stop and put a pause there for a second. Jesus was there before the disciples were there. We're going to see that in a moment because Jesus is cooking them breakfast. Here's what I need you to understand. That Jesus has been where you've been. Jesus was there before you were there. He's just waiting for you to catch up. <laughs> that was a freebie. I'll give you that one for free. But he asked them, he says, um, have, have you caught nothing? Whenever God asks you a question like this, he's asking for you to take a moment and do something that we as Pentecostals don't like to do. Shut up and reflect. Like, keep your tongues, stop, hold your tongue, hold it. Uh, this is how we fight my battle, I get it. Are you tired? Are you lonely? Have you been on the dating apps, plenty of fish, and you caught none? <laughs> Don't say amen. Have you worked your butt off in your career and you still can't get a promotion? Have you put everything you can into this marriage and still your husband, your wife won't act right? Have you given your kids everything that you can give them and still they're failing school and now they have the nerve to be rebellious? Jesus stops for a moment and asks them a question that would require reflection. A lot of times in discouragement, we don't take time to reflect. And so we're bombarded by thoughts, we're bombarded by feelings, but Jesus wants to stop and ask you, where are you right now? How, how are you doing right now? I, I get it. You've got a strong worship life. You've got a strong prayer life, a strong life in the word. But have you caught nothing? Here's the thing I love about Jesus. He doesn't want us to deny our feelings. You've got to feel your feelings. Please don't be like those weird Christians who just never like to feel their feelings. Go ahead, boo-boo, cry. Go, cry for a long time if you have to. But whatever you do, don't be dishonest. Because honesty is the bridge that you have to take to get to healing. See, Jesus says, have you caught nothing? And watch the response of the disciples in that second part of verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? And they answered him, real simple, no. After you have paused and reflected, here's the second thing you need to do. You need to pray. I know this doesn't seem like a prayer, but any time you talk to Jesus, no matter how short it is, it is a prayer. They respond to Jesus' question with a simple word, no. 
Some of my greatest prayers, Chris, my greatest breakthroughs haven't come from the lofty father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the celestial God who stood before time began, the first, the last, and the everlasting from everlasting. No, no, no. Some of my greatest prayers have been, <clears throat> help. As a matter of fact, I've been like Hannah where the Bible says she was so discouraged within herself that when she got to the place called Shiloh, she began to weep but no tears or no sound came out of her mouth. Now, some of y'all weren't raised by black mothers. I was raised by a black grandmother. And so uh, you'll understand this right here. Uh, have you ever gotten hit with that belt? And it took about 30 seconds for your voice to catch up with the pain. <laughs> like you just, uh, you just get smacked and you... That, and like two minutes later, like you finally start crying. Like all, all of the folks, I can tell all of the people who didn't get spanked growing up, they're like, I don't understand. I just, it sounds like abuse probably. But, <laughs> but Hannah is at a place where she can't even say words. Eli looks at Hannah and says, Hannah, are you drunk in the house of the Lord? And she has to gather herself and says, no, I'm not, just, I'm not drunk, I'm just desperate. And, and Eli goes, whatever, whatever you need, let, let God bless you. She didn't even have a prayer meeting. All she did was cry. Can I tell you that sometimes God hears liquid prayers? As a matter of fact, the scriptures tell us, I believe it's in Revelation, it says that he takes every tear that we cry and he holds it in a vase. He cares about your pain. Your family may not care about your pain, but he does. But if you're going to walk through discouragement God's way, you've got to pause and reflect. And then when he asks you and he begins to have a conversation with you, you've got to be honest. No, I'm not fulfilled in my job. No, I don't feel very spiritual. No, I don't want to do ministry. No, I'm single and lonely. See, if you don't learn how to feel the feels and be honest about where you are with God, God can't meet you in the place that you pretend to be. Can I say that one more time? God won't meet you in the place that you pretend to be. He wants to meet you right where you are. See, often... Times we want to jump straight to victory without acknowledging or reflecting any of the reality of our pain. But it's okay to be honest with God about what you're going through. Here's what 1 Peter 5 verse 7 says. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. One more time, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. It's interesting because that word cast there, it's a fishing term as I looked it up. It, it, it's like when they would take the net as if Peter would do right here in John chapter 21. And just like he casted his net to get a whole bunch of fish, here's what Jesus says. The same way you would cast your net, I want you to cast your cares. It doesn't have to be organized. It doesn't have to be pretty. See, here's how some of us pray. <laughs> Again, I'm not much of a fisherman, so somebody will correct me online because they always do. Um, but I've never fished with a, a net. I've fished with a pole. And a lot of Christians, that's what our prayer looks like, our prayer life looks like. We like to fish with a pole. Uh, see, when you fish with a pole, you put a specific bait for a specific type of fish. And you're just like, it's real Finances, Jesus. Finances, Jesus. Finances, Jesus. But how many people know that you could be dealing with multiple things at the same time? So Jesus said, don't just come at me with just one or two and be kind of cute. Have you ever had somebody treat you out to a very expensive meal? 
I, I don't have any much money these days, but uh, when, in moments where I have a lot of money, I love to take my friends to really, really awesome restaurants. Um, I was taking a friend recently to a, a restaurant called Rintaro. It's a place that Jay Choi used to work at, uh, really fancy Japanese spa. And when we went, um, I told him, get whatever you want, bro. It's all on me. And he was so conservative. He was like, okay, I'll just, I'll just get this, and I'll just get that. And then, you know, I said, bro, you're fat. I'm fat. That's not enough food right there. Like, come on. He goes, well, I just, I don't want to order too much. I said, bro, don't worry about it. I got it. I didn't really have it, but I would have it later. Um, I said, I got it. Just order whatever. But that's how a lot of us come to Jesus in prayer. We're bashful. We, we don't want to be too much of a burden. And Jesus says, I want you to be a burden. Don't just come at me with one thing or two things. I want you to cast your net. Cast all of it. Come on, talk to me about your bad marriage. Talk to me about your job situation. Talk to me about the relationship issues. Talk to me about the kids. Talk to me about the ministry. Just cast it all. Why? Because I actually care about you. Any, I, many of you have had one-on-ones with me, and you've heard me say this, because in building relationships, one of the things that we have to break through is, well, I don't want to be a burden to people. And I always ask the same question. Think about somebody who's important in your life, whether it be your family member or a close friend. They've always been a burden. That's part of relationship. But how come when we come to Jesus, we don't often want to be a burden? It's because I think some of us don't really believe that he cares. Understand that God's silence is not evidence that he doesn't care. It's just that the teacher never talks during the test. He cares for you. No, 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 I need you to hear that. It, it's not just out of job or duty that he serves you. Look at me real good in my good eye, that's this one. He likes you. He doesn't just love, you ever meet those Christians? I love them, I just don't like them. That's not God. God says, I actually care about what, whatever breaks your heart, guess what? It breaks my heart, so cast them on me. This is a good word. Have you ever overshared with someone and then regretted it a little bit later? <laughs> See, that's never going to be the case with Jesus. You're never going to have a moment where you overshare. I've had those times where you're like, and you guys know me, I'm just very transparent. I practice a lot of vulnerability. But there are some days where I just like verbally vomit because I had a bad day. It actually happened recently, a couple weeks ago. And I was like, man, nah, 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 nah. and then as soon as I walked away, I was like, you idiot, why did you overshare? And part of it was they can't do anything about it, and they don't really care about it. And it gives you these feelings of guilt and shame. But Jesus says, you can always overshare with me. Why? Because I actually care about what you're going through, but not only that, I can do something about it. I got good news for you. He doesn't just empathize with your pain. He wants to heal your pain. One more time, because that preached real good. He doesn't just empathize with your pain. He wants to do something. Here, theologically, we believe that God is 100% man and he's 100% God. He's not 50% man and 50% God. Why? He's 100% man so that he can feel the infirmities of our infliction, but he's 100% God so that he can do something about the infirmities of our affliction. Okay, you're not with me yet. Blind Bartimaeus, he cries out, and Jesus, in his humanity, doesn't hear him the first time, but after he hears Jesus, after Jesus hears Bartimaeus the second time, what, what happens? The divinity of Christ comes and heals Bartimaeus. Okay, you're still not with me. In God's humanity, there's a woman who touches the hem of his garment. He feels virtue coming out of him. And then in his humanity and ignorance, he goes, who touched me? Because he's man. But he's 100% God. Then when he figures out who touches him, he makes her whole. Okay, you're still not. Let me give you one last one. Um, he's 100% man in that he was born through a physical woman. 
but he's 100% God to make sure that nobody had to have sex to be able to make him. It was a supernatural birth. He's 100% man, and he's 100% God because he fully cares, but he can fully act. We don't pray just to feel better. We pray to move heaven and hell. See, I think some of us pray because it's out of Catholic duty. Our Father, come on, you start going through. Let me say two Our Fathers, one Hail Mary, and um, Shabbat-Abadudia. Throw some tongues on it. But you have to begin to pray with earnest expectation and belief that God hears, he cares, and he desires to answer. Somebody say amen. Amen. So after you've paused, after you've prayed, let's look at verse 6. The third thing you need to do in your discouragement is obey. And Jesus said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. See, it's possible to hear the word of God and not be a doer. See, some of us, we're not walking in the breakthrough that we're supposed to be walking in because we know the word, we're just not living the word. Oh, it's going to get real rocky in here. Some of you are in seasons of discouragement right now that are lasting longer than it should because you, you pray, but you won't obey. Here's what the Bible says about that in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We have to hear the word of God, but then look at James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. The the scriptures here in James is basically saying it's not enough just to hear the word. Now, Now, let me stop for a second. You need to learn how to hear the word in your discouragement. Don't, whatever you do, don't stop hearing the word. If, if you don't have the strength to read, find some preacher. There's all kinds of preachers. There's black preachers and white preachers, loud preachers and quiet preachers, Presbyterian and Pentecostal preachers. You take your pick. Just don't stop hearing the word. Why? Because faith doesn't come by you mustering up willpower. You can't muster up faith. It comes by the word of the Lord. Let me just put it out here this way. If Bishop Willis was here, he would say it's illegal to be in a trial without a word from the Lord. And I'm not just talking about the logos, the written word of God. I'm talking about the rhema, fresh, prophetic word from God. You need to be hearing what God is speaking in your season now. Why? Because it's going to build faith. But don't just listen to the word. You've got to do the word. What does that have to do with verse 6, Pastor Dell? Could you imagine Jesus is out there and he says, you haven't caught anything? Okay. Um, just go ahead and cast the net on the right side. Now, I need you to understand something. Peter is not me. He's not you. He's a professional fisherman. When Jesus uh, picked up Peter at the boat yard, he picked him up and Peter had his own business. He had his, you know, Peter Incorporated, Peter and Sons, you know. Uh, He had his own fishing company. Peter is a professional fisherman. What if Peter had been like, Pastor, you think I didn't do that? I tried that already. (laughs) That's how many of us treat the word of the Lord. I've been there. I know that. And Peter could have talked himself out of not obeying the word of the Lord. But Jesus says, cast your net to the right side. Now I've heard Peter, pastors preach this one, and I've probably messed this one up before. And he's like, oh, you got to cast it on the right side because you are on the wrong side. And God's going to cause you. No, no, no. That, let me tell you the difference. Without Jesus, no fish. With Jesus, plenty of fish. 
end of sermon. Without Jesus, no success. With Jesus, full success. And here's the scary part. We live in a world where you can be deceived into thinking you're going to have success. But at the end of this life, God is going to take all of your works, burn it in fire, and the only thing that will last is that which you did for him. That which he called you to. But what if you now cast it to the other side? See, uh, here's the problem with most Christians. We have more word in us than we're willing to obey. Amen. I lost all my amens. Now, um, I'm six foot three. I weigh about 80 pounds. And um, <laughs> uh, I used to work out a lot. I'm about to start eating and, and working out again. And don't amen. I'm not too strong. I'm just, I'm prophesying. I'm speaking by faith. Uh, I'm going to work out. Now, I've had a personal trainer. And so it, I always hate when people, you know, because some of you are those people. Yeah, I'm talking to you, Sam. Um, some of you are those people. It's like, I don't understand, Pastor Dell. It's so fun. Just go run. It's so fun. No, it's not. I hate running, especially on a treadmill. The Bible says the wicked run when no one's chasing them. <laughs> and, and it's funny because every time I'll tell somebody, oh, I hate working out. Even when I used to be thinner, you know, I used to be half the man then that I am today. And I used to play volleyball. I used to have to do a lot of leg and workouts. I did it for a couple years. Still hated it. Never got to that point where, you know, the people say, if you just work out a lot, you'll just love it. That, that's not my calling. I do it because I, I don't want to be fat, right? But without a doubt, when I have this conversation with people, if somebody's like, you know, Sam or, or Nate or somebody, you know, works out a lot, they, here's what they tell me. They go, well, all you got to do is this and this and this and this. And I have to stop them and I have to go, um, so, bro. Uh, I know what to do. I just don't want to do it. It's, out of, it's not out of ignorance. It's out of willpower. See, I wonder if that's how a lot of us are in our faith. Do you find it interesting that Jesus tells you to, watch this, exercise your faith? Faith isn't something that you just have in your heart. It's something you practice. As a matter of fact, the Bible says faith is the substance of things hoped for. It means if you're hoping for it, there should be some evidence. If you're believing God for financial breakthrough, you ought to be tithing. If you're, oh, it got real quiet over there. Okay, let me talk about money some more. Y'all get so quiet on me. If you, if you believe that God's going to save your children, uh, your prayers ought to show it. The faith is the action. It's the exercise of it. And it's not faith until you actually act. Here's the deal. Jesus said, cast your net on the other side and they did it how many opportunities have we missed on breakthrough because we heard God tell us to do something we just didn't obey him let me look at my notes they don't say amen move on okay <clears throat> are you obeying God in seasons of discouragement I want to ask you a question what is God calling you to do in this season while you're discouraged remember Jesus used the metaphor of catching fish for, for Peter. He used it as being a fisher of men. And so we can look at this almost like an analogy to say, even though, Peter, you're discouraged because you messed up, you denied Christ, I'm still calling you to go fish for men. How many of us, we, yeah, you, you get this all the time. Somebody starts going through some stuff. You know, even in our church recently, we've walked through some rough waters. And first thing people go, I'm Brother, I'm just the Lord. I'm just going to bow out right now. I'm just going to. You know, I always find it funny, Pastor Rhonda. Nobody ever calls their boss and is like, hey, boss. You know, I'm just going through a season right now. I'm going to have to take a sabbatical for three months. Keep the paychecks coming. 
I'm just going to have to rest for a little bit. See, for some reason, we always forsake the work of God when we're discouraged. And you don't understand that that's one of the greatest things that you can do to get victory in your discouragement is to make your life about someone else and not you. Some of us are discouraged because our whole life is about us. Amen, 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 amen. I'm going to find them. They're somewhere in here. Um, can I ask you? No, real talk. What are you doing right now? Not even within this church. What are you doing right now that doesn't affect you? How are you blessing other people? How are you serving other people? Some of you would get out of your discouragement and get into encouragement. Why? It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And I'm not saying that you got to go feed a thousand poor people. But go find another family in the church that you know is struggling and babysit them. Babysit their kids for free. Some of you are like, Pastor Dell, can you give me a different example? <laughs> Come on. Take, you know, one of the things, I, I remember when I was, I've had seasons up and down financially in ministry. And I've had days where, man, I didn't know where the next finances were coming from. I didn't know how I was going to eat. Um, as you can see, I made it through it. Uh, <laughs> but I had days where, I'm trying not to tear up. I had days I remember living in San Francisco and I didn't know how I was going to afford meals and I'd hear a knock at the door, and I'd go to the door, and there's this bag of groceries sitting in front of my door uh, with, with good stuff. Not just like cheap government cheese, you know, but like good stuff. And I have no clue who, who put it. But God put it on someone else's heart to be a blessing to me. Who have you been a blessing to? Who have you sacrificed? No excuses. Who are you loving on? Because maybe your breakthrough out of discouragement is going to come as you bless other people. Somebody say yes. Let me move quickly. Job chapter 42, verse 10, because I want you to catch this. You, I won't go into the story of Job, but you know what Job went through. He lost everything, all of his kids, all of his uh, fa money, finances, even his health. But watch what Job 42, verse 10 says. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. When did Job get twice as much as he had before? When he began to pray for his friends. Maybe you don't have money to treat somebody out for dinner. You got a mouth. You got knees, why don't you start praying for them? You wouldn't believe how your heart begins to turn when you make your life about somebody else. I, I, I'll say this and then I'll move on. I was having a counseling day one day and I was meeting with all these different people. And I love counseling sessions and pouring into people and encouraging folks. But I had just gotten frustrated. I had about five or six of them. And every one of them were me, me, my, my, e, my, I, and me, me, I. And it was all about me and I. And by the last one, I kind of went off. I had to apologize later. I go, can I counsel you about something that doesn't have to do with you? Can you ask me about, like, how to encourage somebody else or minister to somebody else? I, I went back and I apologized to them. But I told them I was a bit frustrated because it feels like all of the struggles that we go through are all selfish, self-evolved. I wonder if some of our breakthrough out of discouragement is just going to come when we lay our life down and make it about blessing and serving others. Okay. If you haven't liked any of the last points, you might like, the, like these last two. When you're discouraged, you need to pause, you need to pray, you need to obey. But then here's the next one. You need to remember. Look at verse 7 of John chapter 21. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments, and I love what it says in parentheses, for he had removed it, duh, and, and plunged into the sea. Now you're going to see in a moment 
because this is super important. If you don't hear anything else I've got for you tonight, I need you to catch this. Peter didn't have to jump into the water and go swimming after Jesus. We're going to see that in a verse, the next verse, because the other disciples just rode. They stayed in the boat. They said, I don't know what's up with Peter. (laughs) Weirdo. Him and Jesus, they got some kind of water thing going on, you know. Um, And everybody else starts rowing to Jesus. But here's Peter. Peter, after he had succeeded God's way, recognized that's Jesus. And he put on his identity, I'm sorry, his clothes, remembered who he was, remembered who the Lord was, and he didn't think twice about running after Jesus. And if you don't hear anything else I've said, I need you to catch this. When you are discouraged, you need to turn up your hot pursuit for Jesus like you have never done before in your life. It is easy to get lackadaisical and lazy and apathetic when everything's going wrong. But Peter says, oh, that's you? Oh, oh, that's you. I'll meet you all over there. And he goes, because sometimes you got to swim when nobody else is swimming. Oh, Pastor Dad, I would be more encouraged, but, you know, none of my friends come to church with me. Go to church by yourself. Man, my accountability partner, they're not keeping up on their word. You keep on your word yourself. But when you're in seasons of discouragement, don't lose your pursuit. Don't lose your hunger and your passion for God. Peter puts on his identity, remembers who he is, and pursues the Lord. Two things. You'll never remember who you are until you first have a revelation of whose you are. Peter stopped and said, that's the Lord. I recognize his voice. In hard times, I recognize his voice. I've walked with him long enough to know that even when it's distorted, I recognize his voice. See, you go ahead and run for sin and sex and drugs and alcohol and all that other stuff. I'm going to tell you what I'm running after. I'm running after Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. I'm running after the one who is my peace and my encouragement. Here's why. Because once I recognize who the Lord is, then Peter, the Bible says, puts on his clothes. And I need you to understand that that's a major point. Because the Bible says in parentheses, for he had taken it off. Like, okay. We didn't need that part in there. But I think the scripture is there to tell us that this part is important. That your pursuit of Jesus will remind you of who you are. It's so funny because um, when people are living in sin, this is how they say hi to me. And I'm just a pastor. I think that's how we do sometimes to Jesus. Because when you are not pursuing God, you're pursuing something else. Shame and condemnation come. But when you're a believer, according to scripture, there's no condemnation for the believer. I don't care how long you've been in sin. I don't care who you've had sex with. I don't care what you've drunk. I don't care what you smoke. There's no condemnation once you become a believer. There's only the hot pursuit of who he is. But when you find out that your God is a good father, when you find out he's not like what you've been told growing up, he's not mad, he's not angry, or he's not ashamed of you, but he actually loves you in spite of yourself. You know what that does to you? It makes you want to live up to the standard. This is why I don't allow condemnation at our church. I don't care what you're going through. Some of you are living in sin. Some of you are backslidden. Some of you used to be backslidden. You've never heard me say, come on, get your life together, you piece of hellbound, you know, whatever. I was trying to think of an old Baptist saying, but I couldn't think of one. Um, every time, you know what I'm going to say, man, I get it. Let's come back to Jesus. Because shame has never motivated anyone into righteousness. Only love has. i got to say that one more time. 
Shame has never motivated anyone into righteousness. Only love has. Peter sees Jesus, recognizes who Jesus is. He starts remembering who he is. That discouragement starts breaking off. You remember the story, and I'm almost finished, the story of David. He comes back after fighting with the Philistines. The Philistines were enemies of the children of Israel. And he's fighting with the Philistines. He comes back to a place called Ziglag, and he finds that his whole home has been burned. His wives are gone. Now, he had two wives. I'm telling the Lord, can a brother get one? <laughs> his two wives are gone, his children. And now his, his friends, his boys, the ones who he rolled with, they're talking about killing David. Here's what David does. David grabs the ephod. The linen ephod was the garment that the priest would wear. Now, David was a king. But he said, no, no, I need to go for God myself. I'm not going to go through a middleman. I'm going to go directly to God. I'm going to be the priest. And here we see the priesthood of the believer. He puts on his garment, and he seeks after the Lord. And here's what the Bible says in the King James. I love the way it phrases it. He encouraged himself in the Lord. you got to remember who you are, friend. There are days, and I know Nate's going to make fun of me because he likes to copy me on this part, but this is a good thing to preach. There are some days you've got to point your little bony prophetic finger in your face in the mirror and say you are the head and not the tail. You are above and not beneath. I know you may have messed up yesterday, but you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You're a joint. I don't have no help in here. You are a joint heir with Christ. You're, you're royal priesthood, a peculiar people. You've got to remind yourself, who cares what your mama said about you? What did God say about you? Who cares what your ex said about you? What did God say? about you. You've got to remind yourself who you are. But you'll never know who you are until you know whose you are. Somebody say yes. Hey, LJ, if you could help me on the keys, because I'm going to wrap it up here. Psalms chapter 34, verse 18. It says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he rescues those who are crushed in spirit. In dealing with discouragement, I've told you the first thing you need to do is pause. The second thing you need to do is pray. The third thing you need to do is obey. The fourth thing you need to do is remember, but I've got one more fifth thing. You've got to learn how to commune. John chapter 21, and I'm going to read a few verses here, 8 through 12. It says, but the other disciples came into the little boat. Remember I told you Peter goes off swimming with the disciples. The other ones, they got into a boat. The Bible says, but the other disciples came into the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals here, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many that the net uh, excuse me, although there were so many, the net was not broken. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask them, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. When then, Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. I talked about this last week on Easter, and this might be a recurring theme. But if you had 48 hours to live, what would you do? Many of us would say, man, I'm, I'm going to go drive my car as fast as I can. I'm thinking about that because I got a ticket on the way to church. You pray for your pastor. Um, some of us are thinking, I'm going to eat every single calorie and carb that I ever held back from. 
What would you do if you have 48 hours to live? Man, I'm going to spend time with my loved ones. I'm going to call them up. See, none of us, you and I, we don't know when we're going to go meet the Lord. We don't know when we're going to die. But Jesus knew when he was going to die. And one of the things that he decided to do, Chris, when he knew that he was going to die, was to have a meal with his friends. See, there's a lot of people who, even in our church, who have left or gotten upset because I say things like this. Uh, Fellowship can be just as spiritual as intercession. Some of the greatest breakthroughs that I've actually seen in, in this church with people has happened over dinner, not over altar calls. I find it interesting that Jesus knew Calvin when he was going to die, and one of the last things he decides to do is share a meal with his friends. When we think about communion, we think it's just the bread and the drink, but even the church in Corinth, they, they understood what communion was. It was an entire meal. Jesus calls, and, and turn up for me, LJ, so I can hear you. Jesus calls Peter from the boat, comes running, sits down, and Jesus has got some fish, and he's made breakfast for Jesus has turned into a chef and a waiter for the brokenhearted. And sometimes we think that because we're having a bad day, that so is God. But on your worst day, he's still good. And he's not calling you to deeper levels of prayer in a way. He's not calling you to deeper levels of worship in a way. What he's really calling you to is communion. Communion, common union, that we are commonly united. We're walking together. Communion. See, some of us can take communion and still not be in communion with the Lord. See, when you're in communion with the Lord, it is not this compartmentalized relationship where you worship God on Sunday or 20 minutes at the beginning of your day and you don't think about him for the rest of the day. No, no, that's not communion. Communion is walking up aisle six and all of a sudden you just got to stop for a moment and wipe the tears from your eyes because the Holy Spirit just, see, I don't know if you've ever had those moments, but I've had temp jobs and I've been in my cubicle and and it's a dangerous thing to play worship music in the cubicle because all of a sudden you'll be just doing data entry and I've had moments where I go, oh, I got to run to the bathroom, sit on the toilet for a minute. Don't have to use the bathroom. I just need to have a moment with God because this isn't just about a Sunday encounter. This is, I want to walk with him. I, I want him, I want him to commonly unite with me. I want to be in union with the Lord. Have you lost your communion in the midst of your discouragement? Have you let, like Peter, the winds and the waves distract you from focus with Jesus and now you find yourself sinking here's the thing I love about God at no point in this scripture from John chapter 21 does Jesus ever beat Peter upside the head Peter I told you boy I was going to come back in three days what happened man because that's how we think that's why people stay away from church it's so funny I've had folks come into this church high as a kite, man. Just They smell like all kinds of skunk and marijuana. And I'll give them a big hug and I'll go, whoa, you smoke some weed? <laughs> they'll look at me. <laughs> this actually happened a couple weeks ago. They'll look at me and they'll go, pastor. I go, no, 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 no. I'd rather you be high in the house. Y'all don't want to talk to me, you religious believers. I'd rather you be high in the presence of God than high out in the world. There's this 
kid in Acts chapter 19. He's in the upper room with Paul and he's preaching and Paul has preached so long. The Bible says that he preached from dinner until the next morning. So if you think my sermons are long, which you don't think my sermons are long, say amen. Amen. <laughs> His name is Eutychus and Eutychus is sitting in the window seal and he falls asleep because even young men grow tired and weary. And when he falls asleep, the Bible says that he falls out of the window and he dies in the middle of the night, in the middle of Paul's message. Now, when you're preaching and somebody dies, just stop preaching. Service is over. Paul goes downstairs, resurrects him up from the, the dead, and then goes back and preaches some more. Now, you know you're a preacher when you can make the dead come alive and keep on preaching. But Eutychus... His problem was not that he fell asleep, got tired, because we're all going to get tired and we're all going to get discouraged some days. I've got some real estate friends, and this is what they'll tell me about real estate. They tell, it doesn't matter as much as how the house is designed as it does these three words, location, location, location. One of my friends, moved, close friends, they might be watching, I'm still a little bitter at them, um, but they moved out into the outskirts of Atlanta and they have about two acres of land, a five-bedroom, two-story home, big old garage, like just gorgeous. They told me it cost a few hundred thousand dollars. And I was looking at it, and I was going, man, there are homes smaller than that in the Bay Area that cost millions. And here's what he said. It's all about location. What are you talking about, Pastor Doug? Eutychus's problem was not that he felt tired. It's that he felt tired halfway in and halfway out. He was in the room, but barely. So no wonder when he falls asleep, he falls out and he dies. See, some of you have not recommitted yourself to communion in a long time. And you think that you're always going to serve the Lord. But I've, I've, I've walked with friends who don't walk with Jesus anymore. I've seen some of the strongest ones who, who have preached in front of thousands who don't even believe that God is real anymore. What if Eutychus had been on the front row? He wouldn't have died. See, friend, Jesus doesn't just want to preach at you. He wants to eat with you. I'll share this last story, and then we'll go home. Pastor Rhonda, Bill, very early in my ministry, I had a lot of zeal for the Lord, just didn't have a lot of money. When I was 17 years old, I decided that I would go into full-time ministry, and I didn't think I'd preach or any of that. I worked for what was then Francisco, San Francisco Rescue Mission. And um, it was an internship where we were housed in the Tenderloin, but we didn't get a paycheck. All we had was food provided for us. Now, when I left my home, I was getting ready to go to a very nice college with a um, full academic scholarship. And so at 17, six months before I was going to graduate with honors, the Lord spoke to me and said, I want you to go into ministry with the rescue mission. And so I, I got a, couldn't get any support. I tried to fundraise, but everybody called me crazy. They didn't understand what I was doing. How could, my grandmother was upset for two years. She said, I don't want you to come to my house. She wouldn't pick up my phone calls. Wasn't allowed to come to Christmas dinner. My church family at the time, there were different people who said to me, literally walked up to me, elders and deacons, and said, nobody's going to want to hear you preach because you're not even going to college. And so I took out a $500 credit card from Wells Fargo because that was the only amount they would give me. I didn't have credit at 17, 18 years old. 
I maxed out that credit card on stuff like toothbrush and toothpaste and all this other stuff. And I was excited going into ministry. And all I was doing was I wasn't preaching. I wasn't leading thousands to the Lord. I was cleaning up poop off of walls and single room occupancies and tenderloins. I didn't even know what weed smelled like when I was 18. But when I lived in the tenderloin, I found out what weed smelled like. I didn't know what it was. I just remember every time I see a group of young people, it just starts smelling like skunks. I remember one of the first weeks, it was my job to clean the front of the church. And I come out to clean the front of the church because people, the homeless, would defecate on the church grounds. And I was clean. And I get out, and there's a car here and a car here. And then there's a woman right in the middle, and she's smoking, like, some kind of dope. And she's naked, and she's taking a poop right there. And I'm looking at She looks at me, and she goes, what are you looking at? You. <laughs> this is interesting. I say this because this, even though I tell a lot of you that I, was, I grew up poor, but I went to private school. My grandmother hustled to make sure that we were provided for. I didn't know we were poor until later on in life. I saw all the stuff that my grandmother did behind the scenes. About a year into it, I needed a car because we had started a children's program. And so I needed to go around and collect all the kids to bring them on Saturday. And we had grown a children's program from about five kids to about 300 in a couple of months. We made a deal. Some of you know I speak Spanish. And most of the parents in the Tenderloin, they were Spanish speakers. And they couldn't help their kids uh, with their homework. And so we made a deal with the parents. I said, man, we will come in and do free tutoring if you let your kids come to our children's ministry on Saturday. And so they were like, orale, let's do it. And so... Uh, our program grew from about five kids to close to 300. Powerful, powerful time. I was working about 10 to 12 hours Monday through Saturday and 8 to 10 hours on Sunday, no days off. And then the days we did have off, we had to spend it with each other. It was a little bit of a toxic work environment. And about a year into being into this internship that in the beginning I was so um, kind of encouraged and excited about, I start getting discouraged because here I am can't get any financial support. My family won't talk to me. My church calls me pride, prideful and ignorant. And I had this little 89 Acura four-door. I hated this car because the, the engine was louder than the radio. I couldn't afford new windshield wipers, so I hated when it would rain because the windshield wipers wouldn't work, but they would make a lot of noise. Um, and I just, I remember I was driving one day and I was so discouraged. I was asking the Lord, I was like, Lord, why, why do you have to make this so hard? I know you guys don't talk to God like this, but this is letting you into my talk with God. I said, God, why does it have to be this hard? I've already told you yes, and you know I'm not turning my back on you. Even if it stays hard like this for the rest of my days, Lord, you know I'm going to serve you because I don't want to go to hell. Lord, I'm going to serve you, Jesus. But I'm just asking, would you just ease up a little bit? And I'm driving, and it's raining almost like a movie, and I'm dropping off kids. And finally, my car is empty. I'm just driving. And I just remember feeling so discouraged. No support. No help. I'm overworked. Underappreciated. And Lord, my family won't talk to me. Come on, God, do something. And I pulled to the side of the road because just then my check engine light came on. No joke, I lost it. <laughs> I pulled to the side of the road. I was slamming on my car wheel, and I was going, now this, now this, now this. 
And I looked up to heaven and I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, you don't have to make it this hard. I'll serve you no matter what, but you don't have to make it this hard. And I heard the Lord say, um, do you trust me? Now, some of y'all are smiling because what a beautiful answer from the Lord. But when you're going through what you're going through that heavy, sometimes hope feels like an attack. What do you mean, do I trust you? You know I don't trust you. Dell, do you trust me? Lord, you know I trust you. Here's what the Lord said to me. He said, Dell, if you will take care of my business, I'll always take care of yours. Kind of wiped my eyes. And I wish the end of my story was that, you know, he picked me up, turned me around, and placed my feet on solid ground. But I went back to work discouraged. Serve discouraged. They asked me to lead worship one Sunday, and I know that I can play music now and lead worship. But back then, I didn't know how. I knew about four chords, and it was really horrible. And after about a week later, Team A and Team B, C was gone. I was like Team G. They're like, well, you can play, and you know the Lord. Can you lead worship? And I get up, and I start singing. And when I start singing, it was horrible, y'all, like really bad. After the first song, there's this lady, an older black lady with a cane. She walks up to the altar and I'm thinking in my head, okay, wow, she's about to come to the altar and just worship the Lord. She comes right up to the altar where the pulpit is. I have my little guitar in my hand and she yells at me, you suck. And then she turns around, walks back to her seat. I look at my pastor who was sitting over here where Bill and Rhonda are and he just looked at me and then he goes, just no encouragement. I remember I started singing, here I am to worship. Why do I share this story with you? See, moving out of discouragement is not always a overnight moment. Sometimes it's a process because in your discouragement, God is teaching you who he is. David said, it is good that I was afflicted, that I might know the decrees and the ways of the Lord. It was in those moments that I found that I was closer to Jesus out of desperation than I had ever been. My walk with God, I was so tender before the Lord because I needed him. I was desperate. And some of us run away from God in our discouragement. I was running to him in my discouragement. And every time I would think about on the edge of giving up, I just feel the spirit uplift me one more time. And it's almost, you ever play those racing car video games? You think you're running out of time and then you get to the check mark and it re-ups your time? It almost felt like that. Wait, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. I just felt the Lord renew, renew, renew. Long story short, I graduated out of that internship. A lot of victory. Wasn't discouraged. Two years later, my grandmother called me because somebody had slipped her a tape of me preaching. She said, boy, I want you to come over for Christmas. After two years, I went home for Christmas. And what you don't understand, this is a big deal because black people like to cook big on Thanksgiving and Christmas. And Christmas is gumbo season. Somebody say yes. And so I went home. And when I walked in those doors, I was expecting to, like, get a headache and full. And my grandmother said, hey, it's Pierre. That's my middle name. You're not allowed to call me that, but she could. Um, she said, hey, this is Pierre. He called himself a preacher. That boy can preach. He's a little pastor or something. I ran to the bathroom and started crying because I remembered being in that 89 Acura where the radio was not as loud as the engine and the windshield wipers didn't work. And I heard God say, if you take care of my business, I'll take care of yours. Ten years later, 
after I had started Collide, before we were a church, we were a conference organization. We do these big conferences all over. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He said, I want you to repent to your youth pastor. I was like, I didn't do nothing to him. I really couldn't think of anything that I needed to repent from. And I started thinking about the attitude in my heart that he didn't even know about. So I called him up. He was a senior pastor at that time. And I sat down in his office and I said, hey, I just got to repent because of this. And I shared everything and he's kind of blown away. And he said, hey, I've heard about your ministry. It sounds like you guys are doing good stuff. Could you come and do one of your little events? That's how black people say it. We have to throw in the word little. <laughs> come and do one of your little events at, uh, at our church. Now, what you, you don't really understand the context. That's a miracle. It, it really is. And the church I grew up in, they didn't let any outsiders do anything. We did an event there. And uh, Grandma, we, we were so packed that we had to put people in the choir stand. People were sitting on the floor, all over the stage. It was a powerful time in San Francisco. Remember I told you there was those deacon and elders when I went into ministry. They said to me, they said, uh, nobody's going to ever want to come hear you preach because you're uneducated. Well, after they heard that I was doing a conference at their church, they would text me and say, hey, can we get some reserved seats for your conference? <laughs> and I wasn't even mad at them. I just looked up to heaven and I said, God... You're so faithful and true. You always come through, Jesus. He said, if you take care of my business, I'll take care of yours. What am I trying to say? This discouragement thing, Connie, it's not easy to get out of. But if you faint not, the race isn't given to the swift nor to the fast. It's given to them who will endure. Listen with me tonight. You might be watching this message online watching at home, listening on the drive home, and you're sitting in some stuff, even in this room, you're sitting in some stuff right now that you, you just, it's overwhelming you. It was even hard for you to worship today. I want to tell you that God is true to his promises, that if you will learn the process of how we walk through discouragement, I'm telling you, victory's on the other side. But even before victory comes, he'll give you joy right now. He'll give you peace right now. I want you to be honest if you're watching online or if you're here. Every eye open, every head raised. If you've been in a season of discouragement or just you're in a moment of discouragement right now, would you just slip your hand over your head so I could see you? See that hand, I see you. See you. Wow. Wow. See a good portion of us. I'm sure many of you who are watching online even raising your hand right now. how we're going to end tonight. I'm just asking the Lord, how do we respond to this? And I want to respond the same way that Peter responded. I want to go after God for a little bit. And I know I've gone over my time, so we won't take long for this. 
But see, one of the things that worship does is it gets you off of the natural and it puts your mind on the supernatural. So I'm going to ask the band to join me for a moment. We're just going to sing this chorus a few times. But I'm reminded of a story where Elisha is getting ready to face his enemy army and they are banded up on the mountaintop and all they can see is the army. Elisha has his assistant with him and Elisha's assistant is afraid and scared. He looks at Elisha and pretty much says, what are we going to do right now? I am overwhelmed at the battle that's getting ready to go down. And Elisha prays a prayer. He says, Lord, open the eyes of my servant that he can see that there are more with us than those who are against us. God supernaturally opens up that assistant's eyes. And he begins to see not only the armies that were his enemies, but the Bible says that he sees angels and chariots that were on fire. See, one of the reasons why you need to worship is because it lifts you out of the moment that you're in. We don't just sing because we got to have like a preset before the preaching or some Christian karaoke. What we do is we, we take our soul, singing and music, it moves our soul to focus and be directed on the Lord. So would you close your eyes? I want to pray for you for a moment. I want to sing this chorus and then I'll dismiss this together. But especially if you're struggling through some discouragement, would you put your hand over your heart right now? Nobody has to know what you're discouraged about. Nobody needs to know what you're going through. The Lord knows. And I want to pray for you for a moment. God, I don't know what's happening in the hearts of your people, God. I don't know what's got them discouraged, what's got them overwhelmed. But this I do know, Holy Spirit, that you are more than able to be a present help in the time of need. So God, I pray that you would rush in right now. Come on, receive. Rush in right now, Jesus. Rush in right now, God. God, and I pray for those who have grown weary and tired and their pursuit has grown weary and tired. Holy Ghost, would you overwhelm them by your spirit and not by their problems? Let's sing this together.